If you've not already done so, you can open your Bibles to uh, that passage that Sam <coughs> read for us, uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, as he said, this is the beginning of our uh, Advent series. We're starting one week early because uh, over the course of the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at the four servant songs uh, in Isaiah, these, these four songs that uh, begin to lay out for us the wonder of what Christ does for us, what, what God with us actually accomplishes when he comes. But this morning, our focus is going to be here in chapter 40, because it's here that the promise that Jesus is fulfilling is set forth, and it's contained there in that very first verse. God says through the prophet, comfort, comfort my people. If you are used to only reading the comforting, encouraging portions of the scripture, that that may just be standard fare for you to hear God speak this way. But you can only really understand the full significance of what the prophet is saying when you contrast it with what has come before, when you, when you see this promise in the light of what Isaiah has been saying up to this point in the book. Isaiah tells us in the very first uh, verse of his book that he ministered during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And that gives us a, a time frame for his ministry. And what it tells us is that he served during the time when the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria. He saw the fall of the northern tribes of Israel. You remember that Israel had been divided after Solomon, that that the, the northern tribes had pulled away from Judah, and they had established their own kings, their own dynasties, with their own altars. They, they had rebelled against the Lord and against his anointed, and they had gone their own way. And that set the pattern for really their entire history as they lived in rebellion against the Lord, and eventually God sent them into exile at the hands of Assyria. And Isaiah had seen that in his lifetime. But he did not simply point the finger at them and, and say, see, you, you got what was coming to you. But rather the prophet Isaiah knew that the southern tribes were on the same road. They were headed to the same end, for they were walking in the same sort of rebellion. And therefore, as a prophet uh, inspired by the Lord, he said again and again to the people of the southern tribes that they were headed towards exile just as Israel had seen. We see this, for example, in uh, chapter 5. Just turn with me quickly to the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, the, the prophet is, is speaking of Israel as the Lord's vineyard. And notice what he says. Notice what the Lord says through Isaiah, beginning in verse 5. He says, Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed. Briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds, and, they, and no rain shall fall upon it. This is the Lord's judgment against the southern tribes of Judah. This is what he says is coming. And why? Why are they going to face this judgment? Because of what he says in verse 7. He says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. 
But when he looked for justice, when he, when he looked for the fruit of the vine that he had planted, when he looked for justice, behold, he found only bloodshed. And when he looked for righteousness, he heard only an outcry. The people of Judah were, were doing what was right in their own eyes. They were living in rebellion against the Lord. They were not honoring him as God or walking in his ways. And therefore, the prophet Isaiah says that they will suffer judgment. And not only that, but, but he knew that that judgment was coming for certain because God had told him that despite his calls to repentance, the people would not listen. Just turn over to, to verse 8 and 9 of, of chapter 6. Because here we, we, we hear uh, the, the message that God says to Isaiah. He says, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. But then notice what the Lord says. He says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. He says, listen, if this people would repent, I would heal them. But your words are going to have the opposite effect. Your words are only going to confirm them in their rebellion. Your, firm, your words are only going to confirm them in their unrighteousness. And therefore, judgment is going to come. That is the, the central theme of the, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah's book. There are glimmers of hope here and there. It's in the first 39 chapters that we hear the promise of Emmanuel, that we hear a virgin will, will give birth to a son, that, the, that a root will grow up from the stump of Jesse. There are... There are Hints of, of hope in the early chapters. But the overwhelming theme of these, the first part of Isaiah's book is that of judgment. A judgment that will ultimately be manifest in exile. The people will be driven from the land. And that is why the first verse of, of chapter 40 comes as, as such a, a welcome relief. Because the God who has said, you will be judged, you will be punished for your sins, that God now says, comfort, comfort my people. The, tr the transition is so startling that uh, E.J. Young, longtime Old Testament professor at Westminster Seminary, in his commentary on Isaiah says, when one turns from the 39th to the 40th chapter, it is as though the st he steps out of darkness into the light of salvation. And it was that promise, that hope, that was at the center of the Advent season. It was the, the longing for the coming of what had been promised, the, the longing for the consolation of Israel to finally be revealed. And of course, we have that same longing even Today. Yes, yes, we, we live this side of Jesus' first coming. Even as we have confessed this morning, Jesus has come. He was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. And he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He, he died and was buried for our sins, even as the scriptures prophesied. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven, where he is now seated enthroned at the right hand of the Father, reigning on our behalf. It's why Peter can say that our salvation has been accomplished. It is ready to be revealed, but it has not yet been revealed. Not yet fully. Not yet fully manifest. Our, our salvation is already. And at the same time, our salvation is not yet. We, we look forward to the day when it will be fully ours, when all that has been promised will be poured out in 
full. And so the same longing that the, the Old Testament people of God experienced while they were in exile is a longing that we feel even today. Because in a sense, we are still with them in exile. No, we're, we're not under the, the power of a foreign army. We're not under Babylon's control. We're not exiled in, in Rome. But nevertheless, we live in an evil age where there are real evil powers that oppress the people of God. So much so that the, the New Testament authors can again and again speak of us as exiles, speak, speak of us as strangers, speak of us as sojourners in a land not our home. And therefore, the, the hope of Isaiah 40 is for us today, even as it was for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. We need to hear this promise. We need to cling to this promise. We need to rest in this promise. And for us to do that, we need to understand exactly what this promise is. What is this comfort that God says he's going to give to his people? Look again at verse 2. Because he begins to unpack it for us. God instructs Isaiah to speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And what, are they, what is he to say? What is he to say in this tender voice? First, he is to say that her warfare is ended. The warfare is coming. They will be besieged. They will be conquered but that warfare will not be forever. And this warfare is not a, it's not a battle between equals. This warfare is the subjugation of a lesser army by a greater army. This, this warfare is the, the, the exile of Israel. It's why the, the ESV suggests there in the footnote that, that maybe hardship might better uh, communicate what is being said here. Because this is not a battle between equals. This is the subjugation of a weak people by a strong people. And that's what's going to happen because of sin. God's people were going to be sent into exile. They were going to be conquered by the Babylonians. God was going to, to pour out his wrath upon them. But notice that that subjugation would not be the last chapter in their story. That subjugation would not be the end of them as a people. But notice what Isaiah is saying. He's saying that their hardship will come to an end. Why? Why will it end? Why will it, why will it, see, uh, why will it be finished one day? Not because God will suddenly decide to ignore their sins. Not because he will, he will suddenly decide to, to overlook their, their failures. But rather, look at the last phrase of verse 2. Their exile will end because she will have received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, when I was a kid, I used to always think that meant that they had gotten more than they deserved. That's not what Isaiah is saying. The, the phrase that receiving double for all their sins means that, that the, God's full wrath has been poured out. It has been poured out in full. The full punishment has been executed. And because that wrath has been poured out, Israel's exile will end. But how is that possible? How is it possible that, that Israel can endure the full wrath of God and live to see another day? How is it possible that they can endure the, the full judgment that is due to them for their sins and yet still have a future? How can a man atone for his sins? How can a man make up for, for his failures? How, how can a man redeem his own life? 
We know from the rest of Scripture that he can't. The wages of, of sin is death. A man cannot possibly atone for his life. He cannot atone for his sins and, and redeem his, his life. Think of what Jesus says in the parable of the unprofitable servant. He says, even when you have done all that you are, are required to do, you are but an unprofitable servant. You see, you were created by God and you were created for God. And therefore, even if you could obey him perfectly from this point forward, forward if, you could, if you could fully f execute his will, if you could never fall short of his, his glory, you could not possibly make up for your past sins, the sins you have already committed, because all of that future obedience is what you owe him anyway. It would not super arrogant. It would not go above and beyond. It would not atone for anything. And so how is it possible that a man can, can endure the, the full wrath of God and yet have a future? Well, the reality is that this text doesn't tell us. We, we don't see it here yet. But, but it is telling us that God is going to do something extraordinary. It's prompting us to ask the question, how can God keep such a promise? How can God pour out his full wrath and yet not make a full end of his people? That's the question. That's the question that this text is, is forcing us to ask. And of course, this side of the cross, we know the answer, do we not? How is it possible for God to pour out his full wrath and yet not make a full end of his people? Because Jesus stands in our place. Because Jesus drinks that cup on our behalf. The cup that Jesus drinks is the cup of God's wrath. And he drinks it to the dregs so that we might instead receive the cup of his blessing. That's what this text is pointing to. The, the, this text is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. In him, God's wrath is fully executed. And in him, our salvation is fully secured. God himself is going to be the salvation of his people. It's what we actually see in the, the next verses there. Turn back uh, to Isaiah chapter 40. God says to speak comfort, and then he, he foretells of a voice crying out. And what does the voice say? In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now again, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you, you know that, that this is the text that they use to, to describe and to explain the ministry of John the Baptist. He is the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But again, notice that. He's preparing the way of the Lord. Jesus comes as Emmanuel. He comes as God with us. He is the Lord come in human flesh to save his people. God himself is going to do it. He is going to come and nothing is going to stand in his way. No obstacle will hinder him. That's what it means to say that the valleys shall be lifted up and the mountains shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. It means that no obstacle can hinder him. For he is the Lord and he is coming. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Even as John told us, it was revealed. When Jesus came, remember how he says it, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Isaiah is foretelling of Jesus. He's telling of the day when the Lord will come in human flesh to bring comfort and salvation to his people. This is why the the, the people are are called to to herald the good news there beginning in verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. And what is the good news? Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. God is the gospel. God coming in the person of Jesus Christ is the good news. For he comes with his reward with him and his recompense before him. He brings salvation to his people and judgment to his enemies. And he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with Young God is coming to bring comfort to his people. And exactly how that comfort is accomplished will be further explored in the weeks to come as we, as we look at the servant songs, as we look at what this, this one who comes actually does. But for now, we see simply that God is coming, and he's coming to bring comfort to his people, and there is nothing that can stop him. There is nothing that can prevent him from executing his will, from doing all that he has promised. Why? Because the Lord has said he's going to do it. And what the Lord says, he does. That's the the point of of verses 6 through 8 there. All flesh is grass. And its its beauty is like the the flower of the field. The, The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. What is the prophet telling us? He's telling us that that as human beings, as as flesh, our words can sometimes be proven false. Even things we intend to do, we sometimes aren't able to accomplish because of our, our weakness. But the word of the Lord never returns void. The word of the Lord is always accomplished. Why? Because he is the everlasting God. The God who has spoken is the God who is described there beginning in verse 12. Look again at at what the prophet says. Speaking of this God, he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? Who holds the oceans as just a drop in his hand? Who has marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? He is the creator God. He is the one who spoke all of the cosmos into existence by the mere word of his power. This is the God who has spoken. If God's word brings forth the universe, how much more can we trust his word to bring forth the comfort for which our hearts long? And not only that, but notice what he says. He says, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or or what man has shown him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And and who made him understand or taught him the path of justice, taught him knowledge, showed him the way of understanding? God is the source of all wisdom. He is the source of all knowledge. No one has to, to teach him. 
And so therefore, there, there can be no factors that he has not foreseen. There can be no obstacles that he did not know. He speaks with absolute wisdom. He speaks with absolute knowledge. And therefore, there is nothing that can hinder his purposes. And there are no powers that can stop him. Notice, he says, the nations are like a drop from the bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands as fine dust. There is no power, human or spiritual, in this cosmos that can thwart his purposes. And so if God has said it, he will surely do it. This is the God who says, comfort, comfort my people. This is why the Old Testament people of God could look for the consolation of Israel with absolute certainty and hope. Even as they waited year after year, generation after generation, they knew that God was going to keep his word. And they looked for the coming of Emmanuel. And it's why we today can say the promises have not yet been fully fulfilled. So there is yet a future glory for the people of God. Jesus has come. He has accomplished our salvation. But there is coming a day when that salvation that he has accomplished will be fully revealed, when all things will be made new, when the kingdom will fill the earth as the, the waters cover the sea, where justice and righteousness and peace will, will be forevermore undefiled by sin, untainted by human greed and injustice. That is our future that is the comfort that, that God has for us. We do not yet see it in full, but we know that day is coming. And therefore, at the end of Isaiah 40, the prophet can say that those who will wait for him, they will be renewed. Look again what he says. He says, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That is the promise of comfort that is for us this morning. It's not just a promise that one day things will be better. It's a promise now that if we will wait on him in faith, he will renew us. He will strengthen us. He will sustain us to endure in faithfulness, even in this present evil age. So I ask you this morning, as we prepare to begin our celebration of the Advent season, are you feeling faint? Are you feeling weak? Do you know yourself to be living in exile? Do you know yourself to be living in a present evil age? Sometimes that, that evil is the result of our own sins, our own rebellions against God. We have, we have uh, turned to the right or to the left from his path, and, and we have walked into hardship. But sometimes the hardships we face are the result of other people's sins, a result of just the brokenness of this world that we live in, bodies that, that fail, thorns and thistles in the workplace. Fractured relationships in the home. And yet God says, I know you're weary. I know you're fainting. But if you will wait on me, I will renew your strength. Long for the day of the coming of the consolation of Israel. And even that longing will sustain you in the present to keep on walking in my way. If you have this hope, 
You can wait patiently for the Lord without grumbling, without bitterness, without frustration. You can wait with sure and certain hope because the Lord God Almighty, the eternal God, has said it. He has made his promise, and what he has promised, he will surely do. And therefore, even this morning, even this morning as as we sometimes groan, we can rejoice because we know our hope is certain. We know our comfort is coming. We know our exile is not forever. We know that he will sustain us until that day. And therefore, we can rejoice even as we grieve in our present trials. And because we have such a hope in Jesus Christ, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we we thank you for the hope of this gospel. We thank you for the, the solid foundation of your promise. Father, teach us to wait upon you. Teach us to entrust ourselves to you that our strength might be renewed even as we wait for that day when the consolation of Israel will be made manifest in full. Father, we know that Jesus has already accomplished our salvation. We know that it is ready to be revealed. And we pray that it would come quickly. But we pray that you would sustain us until that day in the hope of your gospel promise. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen.